You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Today's Bible reading is from Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and... May another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of the one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Well, hi everyone, uh, my name is Adam, I'm one of the pastors at DPC. Please have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 1 and you'll see an outline on the welcome card on our website. As we come to think about our passage for today, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in your word. We pray that you would speak to us today uh, through your word, by your spirit, so that we might grow to understand you more and to know how to live well as your people. Amen. Our passage today begins with prayerful preparation. I didn't slip up. I didn't mean to say careful preparation. I really did mean prayerful preparation. Last week we saw that in the presence of his apostles, Jesus ascended into heaven. His parting words included a command to not leave Jerusalem until the Father poured out the Holy Spirit upon them. Now, If you sneak a peek to chapter 2, you'll see that event occurred on the day of Pentecost. But we have this passage here, Acts 1, verses 12 to 26, which comes first. Seems that the apostles had some other business to attend to in preparation for what was uh, in preparation that was prompted by a time of prayer. Now, this time of prayer involved quite a crowd. We have the 11 apostles who are listed in verse 13. You can see all of their names there. And we also read of the women which could mean the apostles' wives, as well as other female disciples of Jesus. And we see Jesus' own mother, Mary, is there 
as well as his brothers. These believers all joined constantly in prayer as they waited for the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty good example for us, isn't it? You know, how many times have you carefully prepared for something but forgotten to pray? Uh, prayerful preparation is about asking God to help you get the facts straight, to make sure you've gotten everything done and to give you the strength you need to complete your task. It's also about asking God to point out anything that you may have missed. Those of you who know me well would know that I love a good list. Uh, Trace and I actually have this laminated sheet of paper with a, a checklist of what to pack when we go away for the weekend. Sadly, the list hasn't been used much this year for obvious reasons, but it's still an awesome list. But as, as organised as we try to be, we inevitably, inevitably forget things. So it's always a great reminder of God's goodness to us when we stop to pray and God points out something we missed. Prayerful preparation can also be something you do when you're simply waiting for an event to take place. Uh, perhaps not something as historical as an outpouring of the Spirit by the Father, but maybe you're wear, uh, waiting to hear some news on how a friend is going or waiting for Daniel Andrews' next press conference. And as you wait, you pray. And in those, in those moments, God may reveal something to you. That seems to be what happened to those gathered in Jerusalem. As we'll see in a moment, God brought to Peter's mind that something had to be done to restore the apostles to the complete number of 12. In verse 8, Jesus said that the apostles would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But the team had been undermined by the betrayal of Judas. They were down a member, and there may have been questions about how reliable the rest of the team could be. They were faced with the massive task of declaring the truth about Jesus, you know, the facts of his life and death and resurrection, and also the actual details, the content of his teaching. The church is built on the witness of the apostles, and at this time, there was a big question mark hanging over the 11 men. Our passage shows us how they sorted this out before the Holy Spirit arrived. It was a significant event, which is why Luke details it here for us in Acts chapter 1. And the lesson for us is that God builds the church on the foundation of the apostolic witness about Jesus. Let me say that again. God builds the church on the foundation of the apostolic witness about Jesus. You'll probably hear that word apostolic a bit in this sermon. Not only because it fits with the passage, but I think it's a pretty cool word that we don't use enough. Well, after the prayerful preparation of this group of Jesus' followers, we learn from Peter's speech that God planned that Judas would be judged and replaced. It's the next point in the outline. In verse 15, we read that Peter stood up amongst the gathered believers, a number of around 120 people. No doubt they were all troubled by Judas's betrayal and they're aware of the questions it might raise for the people they witnessed to about Christ. Peter reassures them by saying that this was always God's plan. He appeals to the scripture, which he quotes in verse 20, and says that the Holy Spirit actually prompted David to write down words which now all these centuries later apply to Judas. 
Before we get into the detail though, let's have a look at verses 18 and 19. I'll read them out. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, many of you will be aware that this is different to how Matthew tells the story in chapter 27 of his gospel. Matthew says that after Judas is filled with remorse, he tries to return the money to the chief priests and elders, but they won't accept it. And then Matthew writes this about him in verses 5 to 8 of Matthew 27. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. So, who bought the field? Was it Judas or the priests? How did he die? Was it hanging or falling over? Well, here's my quick harmonisation of the two accounts. You can ask me some questions later if you're really interested. So Judas threw the money into the temple and then hanged himself on a tree that was on or near a field. After some time, his corpse, which was left there, became bloated and it fell onto the field with his guts coming out. Yes, it's, it's very gross, isn't it? The chief priests then purchased that field in Judas's name and it became known as a place of judgment so that it was only useful for burying the dead. Luke includes these verses as an example of the kind of research that he's done. He says people in Jerusalem knew what had happened to Judas. Now back to our passage, Peter says it was an act of judgment on God's part. This is demonstrated by his quoting of Psalm 69. You know, right from the birth of the church, this Psalm of David was seen as a prophetic description of how Jesus suffered at the hands of wicked men. It's quoted around half a dozen times in the New Testament, and I'd encourage you to look up those references later. It's well worth it. So Peter quotes from verse 25 of that psalm. You can see it's verse 20 in our passage. I'll read it out. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. This quote is from a section of Psalm 69 that calls for God to judge King David's enemies. Applying this to Jesus, Judas has now come to be seen as an enemy of Christ and he has experienced God's wrath. Now, I've often read the word place in Peter's quotation as, a meaning, as meaning his place among the apostles. But it's actually about the field he has purchased. The living no longer dwell in Akeldama. Judas's judgment is confirmed just as it was prophesied in the word of God. Now, this is really important for two reasons. First, Judas's betrayal of Jesus does not undermine the apostolic foundation of the church. It's a bit like you uh, go to the shops and buy a dozen eggs and you find that one of them is broken. 
The fact that one of these eggs is broken doesn't impact on the other eggs. Secondly, it shows that Judas had no authority to be a witness of Jesus. This would prevent anyone claiming to be a disciple of Judas. Let's not forget that the man did a three-year ministry apprenticeship with Jesus and was sent on numerous short-term mission trips. He would have taught people and healed people. You know, what if he had some loyal followers? What if he taught some incorrect things, but people still held on to those teachings? No, Judas's authority had to be revoked. In other words, Judas was a rotten egg, and Peter didn't want him to be mixed in with the other apostles once the mission began. Now, perhaps that makes it sound like the foundation of the church is an omelette, but I'll let you sort that out in your own heads. And thanks to my wife, Tracy, who gave me the idea of the egg illustration. Now, this is all really important because it builds our confidence in the apostolic message by showing that Judas's betrayal was all part of God's plan. Jesus didn't make a mistake in choosing Judas to be one of the twelve. And the gospel witness wasn't halted by his betrayal. Even when King David wrote Psalm 69 a thousand years earlier, God was preparing for it to be used by the first Christians to interpret divine actions. What's the first psalm? Peter then quotes a second psalm to argue that Jews had to be replaced by another person. Psalm 109 speaks of a wicked ruler being replaced as an act of judgment from God. And Peter wants to apply this principle to Judas, which again reinforces that Judas was judged, but also adds that Judas was removed from the office of apostle due to his apostasy. So there was an apostolic vacancy that needed to be filled. That's where Matthias comes into the picture. So let's move on to verse 21 to 26, and we'll see our second point. Matthias restored the apostolic foundation. After establishing that there needed to be a new apostle appointed, Peter explains what qualifications he would need to have. Have a look at verses 21 and 22. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning with John's Baptist to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. He had to be a witness of two things, didn't he? Uh, the ministry of Jesus that took place between his baptism by John up to his ascension into heaven. He also, too, had to be a witness of Jesus' resurrection. This means that he would have been around to see the deeds of Jesus, but also hear the teachings of Jesus. We'll see soon why that was important. Then in verse 23, there are two men who are nominated. There's Joseph, also known as Barsabbas, also known as Justice. Uh, maybe Luke had interviewed different people and been given three different names, and so he wanted to make sure his readers knew that these names all belonged to the same guy. And then we have a second guy nominated, Matthias. Now, something that really fascinates me about this is that they can actually find two men who've been with Jesus and the apostles for the whole three years. You know, we tend to picture Jesus' ministry as being just him and the twelve, and there's kind of occasional crowds that come for some teaching or miracles. 
But this shows that there was always a larger group of people following him, made up of men and women. In fact, you may even recall in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus sent out 72 men in pairs to proclaim the kingdom of God. Perhaps Joseph and uh, Matthias were among them. Well, next the believers pray in verse 24, asking God to search the hearts of these two men and choose the best candidate. Have a look at verse 26. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Now we don't know how they actually did this, how casting lots worked. Um, perhaps they got little stones and wrote their names on them and put them in a bag and drew the stone out. I don't know. But the clear result, the interpretation of this result, is that God has chosen the replacement for Judas. Proverbs 16 verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And interestingly, this is the last time we read of casting lots in the Bible. No doubt this is because the Spirit was poured out to provide God's people with the guidance they need for making wise decisions. In this passage, we learn two things about Matthias that help us to understand his role and why he was needed. The first is that he witnessed Jesus' ministry and resurrection. This shows us that prayerful preparation for the arrival of the Holy Spirit involved being clear on the truths about Jesus. The apostles were to be spirit-empowered witnesses. But witnesses of what? The facts about Jesus and what he accomplished through his life and death and resurrection. They weren't simply going to travel around doing miracles and preaching a general message of love. Instead, they were to share the gospel news about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. This required a reliable witness. The importance of this is shown, the importance of this is shown by Paul in Ephesians 2 verses 19 and 20, where he speaks about the foundations of the church. Get the right passage. Uh, Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. What the apostles taught mattered. Truth matters. Facts matter. The second thing we learn about Matthias's role is that he took on apostolic ministry. Have a look at verse 25, which I think is a key verse that unlocks this entire passage. To take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Again, we see that Judas has been judged and he's left a vacancy. And more importantly, Matthias has a very specific role to play. I think the ESV Bible translation makes it even clearer. Listen to this. To take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. This is about activity as well as authority. He is to engage in Christian ministry, but it is a form of ministry that is done by an apostle. So let's pause for a moment and remind ourselves of what an apostle is. 
The word in Greek means sent one. Jesus sent the apostles to be his witnesses. Many people are sent in the Bible for various reasons, but only a select few men are apostles with a capital A. They are authorised witnesses who point to Jesus and who also represent Jesus and can speak on his behalf. Matthias was truly blessed to be given this office and the ministry that went with it. You may still have a question though. Why did there have to be 12? Why not simply go forth with 11? Well, Luke 22 verses 29 and 30 is helpful here. This is what Jesus said to his apostles. Luke 22, 29 and 30. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Israel was to be reconstituted as the church, But to show the continuity of the people of God, there would be 12 apostles to correspond to the 12 tribes. To be short, one apostle would be to suggest that the mission had already failed. However, once Matthias was appointed, the apostolic foundation was restored and forever completed. This is one last sub-point on this topic. This whole process could lead us to think that every time one of the twelve died, a new new apostle would have to be appointed. Now, maybe like how when a high court judge dies, they have to be replaced. Or if a singer quits the ten tenors, you have to replace him, otherwise their name wouldn't make any sense. But the apostles are not like that. Matthias restored their number before the Holy Spirit was poured out. And then once they began their gospel mission, the apostolic foundation was forever established. Judas had been replaced, the apostleship had been restored, the foundation could be laid. I think this is why Luke mentions this whole process here in chapter 1. Since, you may not know this, Matthias is never mentioned again. You know, it's not like Luke is introducing a new player into his history of the early church. Rather, he's showing how a loose end was tied up so the mission could begin. To further back this up, we can note Acts chapter 12, where James, an apostle, the brother of John, is executed by King Herod, and he wasn't replaced. And then we have the apostle Paul, who is the exception that proves the rule. He was a 13th apostle who was specially commissioned by Jesus, but he'd not been a witness to Jesus' ministry. He even recognises that he's an exception when in 1 Corinthians 15, 7-8, he lists how Jesus appeared to James and then to all of the other apostles. And then last of all, he appeared to Paul also as to one abnormally born. What this means is that there aren't any capital A apostles today. No one who holds the office in the technical sense. There is no one who can speak as an authoritative witness and representative of Christ. If someone claims that they're an apostle with a new message from Jesus, they're going to expand the Bible or they kind of speak of themselves as having an apostolic ministry, then be warned they are not what they claim to be. So let's sum up what we've learned from this passage. Jesus told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Spirit. 
the Spirit would empower them for the mission. But before they did that, there was some prayerful preparation. After spending time in prayer, God used the scriptures to reveal to Peter that they needed to replace Judas. And once that was sorted out, they were ready for the Spirit to come. This prepares us for what we're going to see in the book of Acts. The apostles will be witnesses to Christ and the message will spread throughout the empire. However, the truth of the gospel will be challenged and there will be confusion at times. People will need to refer back to the apostolic tradition because God builds the church on the foundation of the apostolic witness about Jesus. Let's now think about why this is relevant for us today. I want to, I want to kick it off by asking you this. Are you building your faith in your ministry on the apostolic foundation? You may have felt like this sermon has been a lot of facts and sorting through sort of arguments, maybe technical arguments. You may even feel frustrated that I've done a lot of talking about the witness about Jesus, but not a lot of talk about Jesus himself. But that's because this passage calls us to pause, get our mindset right before we go further on in the book of Acts. I want you to have confidence in the apostolic foundation because our faith is built on it. And I want you to know two places you can go to learn this foundation, the New Testament and the Apostles' Creed. The truths taught by the apostles are found in the New Testament. Did you know that every single book in the New Testament was either written by an apostle or a close acquaintance? Matthew and John were apostles. Mark relied on the apostle Peter for his book and Luke was a travelling companion of Paul. If you want to build your faith and ministry, you need to be reading the New Testament. Now, of course, we've seen today, haven't we, that the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and gives us the framework for understanding the New Testament. So I guess I'm saying read the whole Bible, but make sure you read the New Testament. Now, we don't have time to talk about the Apostles' Creed today. Uh, it was written centuries later, so it wasn't written by the apostles, but it was written later as a helpful summary of apostolic belief. You can see it's listed in the welcome card, or you can look it up online later. What I do love about the Apostles' Creed, though, is that its focus is on Jesus in terms of who he is and what he did. And that's because the apostolic foundation is made up of the events of Jesus' life as well as the content of Jesus' message. Let's look at those one at a time. We are used to thinking of the Christian faith as being about belief in the gospel message of forgiveness for all who repent and believe. Yet it was vital that Matthias be a witness to Jesus' ministry since the facts of his life are important too. Before the biographies were written about Jesus, there had to be witnesses who could tell people what he was like. You know, Jesus showed love to everyone healed the sick, liberated those tormented by evil spirits. He fed the hungry. He spent time with children and women and lepers and outcasts. He showed power over creation by calming storms and walking on water. He showed power over death by raising people back to life. He taught with authority and revealed the truth. Here is a man to build your life on. Jesus didn't come with a political agenda or a social agenda. He didn't start a movement based on ideas. He started a movement based on himself. 
And another element to consider about Jesus is that he is God incarnate. As the apostles witnessed Jesus' miracles and heard his teachings, it dawned on them that he was the eternal God come to dwell among them. Now there's a truth to build your life on. You have been made by a loving God who has physically entered into the world and has shared in your experience. He knows what life is like for humanity. He's experienced the highs and the lows of our existence. This is not a philosophy like Buddhism or a set of commands like Islam. This is a personal God who has personally entered into human history to personally forever change the world. And he's still changing it today, one person at a time. That's why there had to be eyewitnesses to this event. It just seems too good to be true, doesn't it? But it really did happen. As we read the testimony of the apostles as recorded in the New Testament, we are brought into the real story of God's redemption of humanity. The other aspect of the apostolic foundation is the content of Jesus' message. Talking about the gospel. Jesus came into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. We are all like Judas in that we have an inclination turned against God. We seek after lesser things because we think that they are better than God. Whether it's pieces of silver, fame or sex or power or pleasure or technology. You know, we push God aside and we live in pursuit of these lesser things. We serve them and shape our lives around them, making poor decisions and we confuse evil for good. Just like Judas, we deserve judgment and death. So that's why Jesus came. He came to die on the cross in our place so that he might bear the judgment that we deserve. The message of the apostles, as we'll see in the rest of the book of Acts, is that if we turn from our sinful ways and put our faith in Jesus, we will be saved. They preach, repent and believe. This is the good news. This is the gospel call. And it's something to build our faith and ministry on. The gospel gives shape to everything we do. You know, it helps us to remember important truths. You know, people are fallen sinners, yet they are deeply loved by God. God shows grace to the humble and will never forsake those who trust in him. God will bring justice to this world and right every wrong. God provides the true power for change through his spirit and the gospel message. To reject these truths is to build a life on shifting sands. You know, as we draw near to the end of our sixth lockdown, we're a little bit like the 120 believers gathered in the upper room. The world is about to get bigger. There's going to be a time of great change. We'll have an opportunity for renewed friendships, renewed ministry, renewed work. But this will also bring great challenges. Some of us may be anxious about being in crowds again. Some of us may be sad about leaving behind the slower pace of lockdown life. Some of us may be worried about the pressures that will be placed on their workplace as Melbourne opens up. We'll face the uncertainty of COVID cases, tensions around vaccine passports, the challenges of getting in-person church up and running again. It seems there really is a parallel between us and those 120 disciples. 
we too need to engage in a time of prayerful preparation. You know, before we burst back into public life, we may need to make sure that our foundation is solid. And so I urge you to spend time in prayer over the next couple of weeks. And as you do that, I trust that God will bring Scripture to mind just like he did for Peter. He'll remind you that the Lord is your shepherd, and so you shall not be in want. He'll remind you that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He'll remind you that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He'll remind you to show grace and love, patience and forgiveness to others. Build your faith, build your ministry on the apostolic foundation, since this foundation is about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And it's on this foundation that God builds his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths that we've just been reminded of. We thank you that you do build your church on the facts about Jesus, about who he is and what he did. And so help us to be confident to build our faith on that, to build our ministry, our lives on that, knowing that it is a sure foundation. Amen. Mm -hmm.